Welcome to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, the podcast devoted to developer marketing, relations, evangelism, and advocacy. I'm Stathis Yorgopoulos, and I'm your host. In each episode, I welcome a guest from the developer marketing world. We talk about best practices, challenges, lessons learned, and share insights, data, and experiences to help you boost your devrel game, talk to, and engage with developers. This podcast is brought to you by Slash Data, the leading analyst of the developer economy, and devrelx.com, a hub devoted to providing resources for developer marketing professionals, including developer ecosystem trends, news and job openings, webinars, a book, and a bi-weekly digest you can subscribe to. Access them all at devrelx.com. Welcome to a new episode of Under the Hood of Developer Marketing. Today, we're back with a new episode from our Master Tip series. In the Master Tips series, we share with you tips and best practices from panel discussions we put together with industry leaders at the Future Developer Summit. DevOps or not, this is the title of today's episode featuring Greg Wilson, who is the Director of Cloud Developer Relations at Google, Nicole Forsgren, the VP of Research and Strategy at GitHub, and Kelsey Hightower, Staff Developer Advocate at Google Cloud. You can watch all sessions from the Future Developer Summit on demand at futuredeveloper.io. So if we're okay on timing, and I think I'm good to checking in with the, with the moderator, if everyone is in position, I can go ahead and get started and, and start talking to you about what we're going to start with. And, and, and our first session is an industry panel. I'm happy to, to transfer your attention to our moderator for the first session, Greg Wilson, uh, Director of Cloud Developer Relations at Google and we'll be leading the discussion in very, very good company. So while they get started, I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. (laughs) Not too much, I'll let them introduce themselves as well. So panelists include Kelsey Hightower, staff developer advocate at Google Cloud Platform, and Nicole Forsgren, VP of Research and Strategy at GitHub. So there they are, we'll see them in a bit. Now about Greg, before I pass on to him, many of you may already know him, but if you don't, He's been at Google for over six years now, uh, running Google Cloud Developer Relations. And before that, spent even more than a decade in another great company, Adobe. So if Greg is with us, I will pass on to him in a second. Uh, Yep, I hear you. Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to pass it on to you. I gave a super brief intro about you, about yourself. So um, I'll okay. let you continue that. Um, okay. And yeah, uh, the stage is yours. Great. Uh, I'm super curious what you said, but I'll just go with it. So I um, joined today by uh, Nicole Forsgren and Kelsey Hightower. Are Nicole and Kelsey, are y'all here? Yep, I I'm here. There. I see you. All right, Nicole, are you, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Excellent. All right. Uh, So I get a quick intro. Uh, Nicole, I've known for a while, uh, literally wrote the book on DevOps. That's kind of the best intro I could come up with in in five seconds. Obviously, I has a ton of experience, been thinking about this a lot longer than most of us. Um, So really looking forward to the conversation, Nicole. And Kelsey, who I've known for quite a while as well, uh, and works a lot with uh, customers uh, inside of Google that, that are you know, trying to solve these problems. And, and so the three of us know each other pretty well, but we're going to basically just have a conversation and see where it goes. And so with that, I thought I would tee it up. Nicole, I'll start with you. You have 30 seconds to describe to someone what DevOps 
is. Uh, how do you describe it? Like, what's your elevator pitch for what it is? Oh, usually, I think my, my fastest pitch is it's the way that we make software now that makes it easier and faster so that we can focus on what's important. Yeah. That's good. That was like 12 seconds, even better. Yes. Kelsey, what's your version of it? Oh, I don't know. I, I'm more cynical. I, I'm more like a, a group therapy for, for system administrators. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think people have been trying to build software for so long, and we realize that there's a human component of it that requires conversation and collaboration. And uh, I think a lot of people have to hit the pause button and take time to do that. And that's kind of how I describe kind of the umbrella of it, even though it's more than that. That's just how I describe it. Yeah. For either one of you, like, is it something that small companies should be thinking about or is it just for large companies like google that are running you know massive infrastructure like where are the lines there like i had a startup for a while we had six engineers and you know various sales and sales folks and all. uh if i were doing that again would we should we care about that at that size yeah when i think about this the smaller the company like i've worked in a lot of startups you know in, in some cases less than 10 people all sitting in the same room. And we had so much shared context. We kind of knew what needed to be done. We all had like, you know, hardcore skills that can actually contribute to that, whether you were a sales or marketing leader, we just kind of knew what the mission was. So we could always resolve something by just looking across the desk and seeing the other person and just saying, hey, we need to get X, Y, Z done. I could just walk over there. So we didn't have a lot of physical walls between us. And we had a lot of... Um, alignment on what could be done. So in those cases, I think we were just doing what people would describe as DevOps, right? Some of the guidance that you see people give to companies who may not have that, right? And I've been at larger companies that maybe that get set in their ways, right? Maybe they got successful in a certain style, you know, maybe the technology kind of had a chance to bake. And then you start building up these small kingdoms around them, like my team is the Oracle team. We install the database. If you yeah. want something done here, you open up a ticket, and we'll do it the way we've always been doing it. And if you do that long enough, you're going to create like these many institutions within your organization. And sometimes that's just going to cause so much friction that then you're going to go through and say, hey, we need to tear down some of these walls, especially when we're going to try to push this organization to do things they've never done before. So maybe the old way won't work, right? You can't rest in, you know, doing the same things you've been doing before. So I don't think the size of the organization is a guarantee, you know, saying that you're going to need DevOps. Mm -hmm. But some of the practices that DevOps talks about that I think some of those larger organizations tend to have gotten away from. And then they see themselves as a need to bring in something to remind them that they do eventually have to work together. Yeah. So, Nicole, kind of playing on that, you know, if, if an organization is reaching the stage that Kelsey just described, where they realize that what they need to build moving forward is just not compatible with the way they're organized and the kingdoms that they've built. I thought that was a good description because it reminded me of previous jobs I've had. You know, so Nicole, they bring you in as an expert, you know, since you, you know, literally wrote the book, uh, you're probably going to be top of the list of them to pull in. Like, where do you start when you get into an organization like that and they, they want to talk about how can we benefit from some of these practices? How do you start that analysis and that discussion with them? Yeah, I think there are a few places to start that discussion. And one is understanding where you are. So it's like, yeah. how well are we doing? And it doesn't have to be anything super technical. It's like, how, how well do you ship software? How fast do you ship software? How stable is it? Uh, where are the fires? Where, where are the pain points, right? What are our biggest challenges right now? 
and from there say, where do we think we want to improve, right? What are our biggest constraints? And then what people do we want to have talk together to help yeah. fix many of these constraints, right? I love how Kelsey mentioned it. It's like, it's kind of like group therapy, right? Because there, yeah. there's definitely a technical component to this because automating much of our work helps because it streamlines things, it makes them consistent, it makes them repeatable, um, it makes them auditable. But a lot of this can be resolved and is often resolved and it helps by bringing different people together, especially when you have these different silos and these different kingdoms that have kind of popped up to say, like, mm. when I ship this thing and it creates serious problems over here, which pieces of it are causing problems? How can we help resolve these differences? How can I change what it is that I'm doing if, if we have now over, because we have massive success and now we have growth and so now we have this huge organization and now we have a completely different development team and a completely different ops team. Maybe the development team doesn't realize that the way that they develop software creates code that like looks super dope over here, but it's, it doesn't scale. It's not reliable. It doesn't meet, you know, it's not performant in like production environments. Yeah. So when you get in those conversations, do you, do you often find that the hype, like the expectations are a little out of line. They think it's a magic bullet. You know, they, they spend some money over here. They buy this set of tools. They read a couple of books and life is going to get grand. Is that, is that something you run into? Life's going to be grand. They want to know the roadmap is to get better within one year. Right. Yeah. And, or they'll take a look at some chart that some jerk published. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and they'll be like, yeah. I see these metrics and like, there's this elite group and this is totally unreasonable. And now everyone wants me to be here within a year and you're horrible. This is awful. And I'm like, no, that that's not at all what this is about. If you want to take, if you decide to take a look at a chart, that's cool. What you can also do is say, where am I now? What's next? What is slightly better from where I am now? And that's true whether you're a low performer or a medium performer, or an, if you're an elite performer, the best, most innovative organizations, even if they're elite performers, say, how can I get better? What is something that I can improve to make life better, to make automation less, introduce less friction? What's something yeah. we can do to get better? You don't have to go from low to elite in six months, otherwise you don't get a gold sticker on your forehead. Like that's not the way it works. Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Well, you know, I, I'm sure you and, you and Kelsey have seen this. You know, I've, I've been in this career over 30 years now, which I'm super proud of. I've seen a lot of, I've, I've ridden a lot of hype cycle roller coasters in my career. Uh, I've been at companies that threw massive amounts of money and resources to try to, you know, do the latest trend. And, and typically what I see happening is that 80% of the effort ended up being a waste of time and money and they threw it away and but 20% stuck around and made things better long-term. And so that's created a little bit of a cynical opinion about things, you know, when I hear about something new. So I guess, Kelsey, a question for you. Where do, where do you think we are in the hype cycle around this topic? You think we're like still going up the, the slope or you think we're headed down to the trough? I think uh, enough people have tried it, have tried the DevOps, right? Whether that's going to LinkedIn and updating your title, uh, you know, becoming the lead DevOps engineer at your company. Uh, maybe you even bought some DevOps software, right? Like maybe you got one of those. And there's enough people who have tried it to know it's not a silver bullet. I think we're at the point where there's enough experience to say, I get it. 
right? These are patterns that have worked for some people. And I think a lot of people forget that there are some teams who can be successful without any DevOps, right? Like when I think about when I was young, I remember in the NBA, uh, they used to send, you know, cottage players to compete in the Olympics for basketball. It's like, this is the Olympics. This is not something we're going to send our very best people to do. And we lost one year. Like we lost. Like people were like, whoa, the world is caught up in skill. Let's assemble the dream team. Like they took like the, the top Hall of Famers, 15 Hall of Fame athletes and said, you know what? Go win the goal. And they won every game by 40 points. It was like ridiculous. Thing is, that's brute force. They just had the raw talent to do whatever. They don't even know the plays. Yep. They've never played together before. They don't have the same team chemistry that another team would have. But that's not a model you can go recreate. right? That's not something you can go look at and say, oh, we're just going to do the same thing at my company. Meaning going to hire a bunch of superstars doesn't mean you're going to be successful. So I think a lot of people have kind of realized that in any team sport, like writing software, you're going to have to actually curate the team. You're going to have some people good at testing, documentation, managers that can groom and grow people, engineers that can mentor people, and then also have a little bit of engineering discipline over time and be consistent with it. There is no substitute for that. And I think that's where people are coming back and saying, I got it. I got to step back up to the table and consistently do the hard work. I think one thing I also really like about your example there in terms of like creating this dream team, they only had to execute for like a week or two. So you yeah. can brute force things, but you can only brute force them for a hot second and then you're done. This is not a long-term viable solution. Center of excellence. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wow, I never thought I'd hear Kelsey Hightower say center of excellence. So. <laughs> Uh, you both mentioned tooling, which sounds like something tangible that I could do if I were looking to, to uh, shift my org to this space. I was wondering if you could talk about what, what, what is tooling when it comes to DevOps? Like, what are we talking about? I often refer to this as serializing your culture. Like, I've, I spent a lot of time in these enterprises that we all talk about that need assistance. And I remember spending three years in the financial institution where you know, you have these big ideas, but then reality sets in, right? You have to incrementally improve, right? Just something as simple as packaging applications and RPMs at the time. That took like a year to really do it for every application, not just a few of the new ones, but all of them and the ones that make us money. So in that context, I always look at these tools as a way to serialize your culture. So if you become a culture of discipline or code reviews where you take the time to look at the code to enforce quality, then you might go look for a tool that makes it easier to do code review so you can serialize your culture into right. the process. And I think CICD solutions are a similar way. No matter which CICD solution you pick, I look at them as a simple execution of what it takes to get done. So if you are a culture who knows how to go end-to-end, -end, meaning if I walk into a place and someone can tell me how to manually deploy all of their software, even though it's not automated, I consider that a high bar. and actually a sign of excellence. I can then serialize that culture of knowing end to end and put it in a tool like CICD. And now the pipeline represents that culture. And if that culture changes things over time, all of those changes should get reflected into the tool they're using. So that's the way I see tools in this equation. They're just a way to serialize the way we behave. Yep. Cole, anything to add to that? No, I Actually, actually, yeah, a little bit. So one, I really love that point about serializing your culture. And in particular, as we think about 
how much the world is kind of shifting to technology, right? Technology is delivering so many things and we're seeing it especially right now, right? When we all need to be at home. And so when we think about serializing our, our culture and shifting as much of our work as possible to technology, by that I mean, once we have figured out something new, right? Figuring out for the first time is something that we do manually. Once we find a way to automate that, that's a fantastic way for us to amplify our impact. And I think that's something that we can do as coders, that's something we can do as developers, that's something as we can do anywhere in our work. And I think what so many people don't often realize is that's also an amazing way to kind of solidify job security. Because once you have shown that you can reinforce culture, amplify your impact, that opens up so many more opportunities. And, yeah. you know, Greg, you had an, an earlier question around like, where are we in the hype cycle? I think people who understand and embrace that this is about amplifying potential and amplifying opportunity mm -hmm. are embracing it and like they're in the happy place. Yeah. People who are expecting and anticipating buy something, plug it in, walk away, and they realize that that's not what this is, they're in that kind of like disappointment trough. And so right. like, I, I kind of see these, these two different camps. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Well, I mean, so that brings me to a question on the top of my head. It's like, how, do, how does success show up when each of you have seen companies, you know, adopt serializing, you know, the, the, the different operations that they do and, and getting a little more organized? I mean, I would imagine that they get more efficient so they can deliver more reliably, but like what other benefits do you see? Like what other tangible measurable things do you see? I remember the magic moment when I kind of grew in, in terms of maturity, right? So when I was younger, I was always about like, oh, Puppet is the tool to save the day. And I would walk around, yeah. rock around, championing these brands of products as if that was the centerpiece. And I remember like most people, you get in, they're opening tickets for everything. Like you got to open a Jira ticket to do everything. And I'm sitting here like, why are we opening these tickets? This is, this is insane. And they're like, look, Kelsey, this is a highly regulated industry. We need to be able to track all of our changes and who approved it. So if you got a better way of doing that, then we're all ears. But until then, this is the process. So I looked at that and said, you know what? What am I complaining about? If this is the optimal way of getting things done for the organization, what if I just hooked into that? And I remember I got the automation to a point where the PM who was requesting a new version of code be deployed, they can open a Jira ticket. And we built the Jira ticket interface in a way that when you click the drop down of the software, you saw all of the RPMs of available versions that have been signed by QA. So what we ended up doing was just taking the tools we had and wrapping it around the workflows that people in some cases were forced to use but then when they could actually do the whole end-to-end -end without involving anyone else on the automation side, they could drop down that ticket. They can feel confident they had control to roll forward and roll back. And this is, wasn't like this container Kubernetes stuff that we're talking about. We're talking about Java, Red Hat, IBM, WebSphere, that kind of world, but we empowered people. So when the change windows became PMs, doing click drop downs and deploying stuff, and then we find out about it in the morning, to me, that what success felt like. We powered the organization to just move as fast as they were ready. Not about the number of deploys per day, but when they were ready to deploy, they had the power to do it. Is it all or nothing for an organization? I mean, because hearing you describe that, it sounds like there's a lot of trust required 
across. Yeah, I, I, right? yeah, I think so. earning my stripes was, I can remember the day I earned my stripes at that organization. I'm about eight months in and we had this Apache web server issue in front of our payments platform and it was just crashing, right? We tried to cut over from the mainframe style to the new world and it's crashing. So when it's crashing, this means that someone that's trying to do a checkout can't swipe their credit card and get an approval. We have to fix this or keep rolling back. And I remember I told the CTO at the time, if you let me experiment in production for at least two hours, meaning I got to restart it a bunch of time. If you give me that leeway, I promise I will fix this thing permanently. And I spent two weeks just like switching to Nginx, getting the memory profile down, studying the log, studying the behavior. And he gave me an opportunity to do it. And we came out of it. And the memory dropped by like 70% forever. We never had that problem again. And he said, you've earned it. You stepped up. Now, you could have failed, but you earned it. You owned the problem end to end. You put the solution in place. So then when I started suggesting other things, I had the people element in place to say, this person is going to stand by until it's actually rolled out into production. Let's hear what he has to say. Yeah. Cole, what are your thoughts? I mean, you've worked with a lot of organizations on this. Do you see a lot of breakdowns in communications from team to team or like cultural differences from team to team that make that make it challenging for people to get on the same bandwagon, so to speak? Oh, yeah. Um, and I really like Kelsey's example where it's like you need to kind of have that kind of like cross-team communication and that success is going to be specific, right? Success is going to be unique to whatever is important to your organization and whatever is important to your organization at that time. So often people come and they're like, what's your top success metric? And I'm like, what industry are you in? What vertical are you in? What, what do your key stakeholders care about? What do your users care about? What is your biggest concern right now? And they're like, why did you just ask me five questions? And I'm like, it depends. Okay, your answer is it depends, yeah. right? We, we really need to think about success in context and then like, because we're talking about DevOps, right? Use technology to, to, to deliver and help us deliver that success because sometimes success is revenue. Sometimes it's customer satisfaction. Sometimes it's um, serving our constituents, right? When we think about government, right? And like healthcare.gov, right? Sometimes, mm -hmm. it's, it, sometimes it's things that are not super visible. Sometimes it's making sure that we have very, very good availability and reliability of our systems. If someone's listening today, and, and I imagine it's a pretty diverse audience, we probably have some leaders out there, uh, you know, IT leaders, wondering, okay, what should I be thinking about? What should I be studying? And then there's probably some technical practitioners out there like us that are like, for my career as an individual, what should I be thinking about? What should I be learning? I just wonder if either one of you had some thoughts on those two scenarios. I have a ton of thoughts. Uh... If you're a leader, there's a chance you are the actual problem. It might actually be you. Like, I know it's a hard pill to swallow. It may be your ideas. It may be your lack of skill set. It may that you need a partner in really understanding what needs to happen next. So maybe you're too at a high level. And like to Nagol's point, you're not talking about what the business needs. You're trying to take a template and apply it to a situation where it doesn't fit. And that can quite quite a lot of stress. Like I, the analogy I use is like your parents going to buy your school clothes and you don't get to go with them, right? They come back. It's like, I think you'll like this. You're like, what the hell is that? I don't think you know me at all. 
<laughs> and so I think we got to be careful not to do that as a leader. And then if you're a practitioner, as a practitioner myself, one thing I learned early on is this accountability thing is very serious. Meaning when I hear someone say, well, you didn't give me training, therefore I don't know how to do that. That's a new way of doing that. And I'm not on board with this. I'm just going to sit with my hands crossed and tell you a million ways why it isn't going to work. Even when I have a competing idea and it's chosen that we're going to do it a different way, I try to roll up my sleeves and number one, just get to the point where if that's actually a bad idea, let's figure that out as soon as possible. If we can do that in two weeks and then like pivot back. So I think as a professional, you have to focus on the fundamentals. It doesn't matter if your favorite CICD system gets picked or if you really like your, you know, puppet or chef shirt and you think the whole company should be using puppet because that's where your identity lies. We got to do a little bit better than that and act as professionals and make sure we focus on the task at hand. And that means also being responsible for making sure that the skills you have continue to improve and respect the skills you don't have because it takes a team to actually execute end to end on this stuff. I, I like the analogies with the, the, the t-shirts. I've, I've seen a lot of people stumble in their career because they get a little too married to a particular product or solution. Uh, I used to work for a company and we had a very passionate user base and I met someone one time that literally had a tattoo of the logo put, <laughs> put on their arm. And that product, by the way, is now dead. So I'm curious how they feel about that tattoo. So yeah, you can't, you can't like over, you've got to be willing to pivot. You got to always be willing to be agile and, 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 and know that whatever you're doing today is not what you're going to be doing in three years from a technology stack. You have to continuously evolving. I think one of the most exciting things about this career that we've chosen is that we're perpetual learners. And I think when you get to a certain point in your career and you realize that literally is the job is just to perpetually be learning, it definitely will in, improve your ability to be successful because then you realize I, I always need to be learning. If I haven't learned anything in the last year, I've failed. You know, so we have one question that came in on the board. Question is, do you see multi-cloud eating the cloud in the long term, uh, as Adam Fitzgerald advocated at the last week's keynote? I think the thing here that most people, when they say multi-cloud, they're not really talking about multi-cloud providers. I think people are really talking about the integration pain. So and when you walk into someone's data center and you see that the servers are made by HP, the networking switches made by Cisco, the storage is made by NetApp. You don't say multi-vendor, right? Because the way we integrate those things is just so straightforward. We don't have these compatibility issues. So when people say multi-cloud, it's because a lot of people don't have experience with the integration components. For example, when you look at Amazon's IAM and you read their docs and their libraries, and then you look at Google Cloud or Azure's, they seem fundamentally different. But actually under the cover, most of them are just OAuth 2, and there's a way you can integrate it, but it's not clear. So instead of us talking about like the network latencies between two locations or the incompatibilities in some APIs, we just wrap that up in multi-cloud to say, these things are like little islands of innovation. And it's really hard for me to adopt them at the same time. So the way we group this is just say multi-cloud. Because if I took away the networking, and if I had a standard authorization layer, no one would think about this. They were like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to call BigQuery from EC2. It would just make sense because why not? I can call from my Java instance or from my Golang program. I can call an Oracle database. Do we think multi-cloud? We don't. So I think it's really more of until we understand and erase some of the burden around integration, we're going to keep this barrier up called multi-cloud. But over time, people are already using things like Salesforce and Gmail, Office 360 and GitHub. These are all considered cloud services. 
but we don't mm -hmm. call that multi-cloud. We just use them because the friction is so low. Yeah, completely agree. So we're getting uh, the last few minutes here. Nicole, I'll, I'll aim this one at you. Like if, if we've piqued someone's interest in this uh, little panel that we've done, where would you recommend people go next to, to learn more, like to, to double click a little bit into what we've talked about today? Oh, I mean, we've talked about a lot of things. So I think, yeah. I think I may kind of point to like one of your last questions, right? So like what kind of advice would you give to leaders or to developers? And I think mm -hmm. one of those things has been around like what's important to you, what's important to your career and how can you help DevOps overall, right? Both in terms of challenges yeah. and successes. And I think one of the things that I've seen help people regardless of where they are in their career is communication, right? So as a leader, communicate clearly, understand what's most important, identify strategies and let your teams know what's important, right? Uh, yep. In terms of developers and practitioners, communicate clearly what it is that you're doing, over communicate, over ask, right? Understand what it is that your stakeholders need, ask and understand what success is, and then deliver to that, right? And yep. to Kelsey's point, right? If that means learning a new tool, then learn a new tool. But if you don't know what that is, find out. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Kelsey, anything to add in our last minute here? Uh, I think a little bit of transparency will help. Um, for example, uh, if you ask someone to build a skyscraper and they've never done it before, and you just say, here's a plot of land, I'm going to come back and I hope there's going to be a skyscraper here. It probably is <laughs> not going to happen. And one thing you could do is say, well, I'm on a journey right now. I'm on a journey to build this skyscraper. Don't have any idea what I'm doing, but I'm on this journey. And I could say that for probably about 100 years, and people will probably have a little bit of empathy for me. But I think companies have to be transparent with themselves and honest. If a team has never built microservices, that's something you're not just going to learn the first time around and just go straight to production. So these timelines don't match up with reality. That's a set of skill and discipline that you're going to have to make room for. It may take years, right? There's no substitute for experience. And some of these timelines that I hear about 18-month transformations, where is the experience going to occur? Unless you go out and hire people that have this kind of experience and then allow them to put that experience into play. But again, they're going to have to integrate with the rest of the team and, and try to figure out how to bring everyone along that I think a lot of times we're not being very realistic. So I think a bit of transparency of, I don't know how to do this. My team lacks the skill set, and there we are, and that's where we need help. And then we can start at the right layer versus assuming we can buy tools and then start rewriting all the code. Yeah. Can't just throw money at it. So. You but can. It, just, uh, it depends on who's well. catching it. <laughs> yeah. You Don't think only you can do this under-resourced and understaffed because that, that ain't happening, kids. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I know we're at the minute. Any parting thoughts, Nicole, Kelsey? Thanks, everyone, for the time. And thanks, yeah. Kelsey and, and Greg. It's nice to catch up. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I always say this. is like regardless of the titles you pick and choose, put people over all of that stuff, right? These titles and methodologies come and they go. But at the end of the day, you still need to be investing in people. So whether you get off of the or onto the DevOps train, the one thing that was a constant here was, you owe it to the people to look at them and treat them as people, not frameworks, not resources, not something you can allocate on a grant chart and think that you're just going to be a high-performing organization. I'd rather have happy people that are motivated and continuously live in an environment where they can be themselves, and you'll see what the best work they can do. But you're not going to do this on a piece of paper on a 2D diagram of a flowchart. So 
let's get back to the human nature of it. Call it whatever you want to call it. But the accountability is that the humans come first. Yeah. If you take the humans out, it's just ones and zeros. So only so much you can do with that. So. All right. Well, I've definitely enjoyed. I feel like we could keep going for another 30 minutes if wow. it'd give us time. But uh, <laughs> but definitely appreciate uh, the two of you joining me in this uh, little chat. I'll see y'all soon. Thanks, everybody, for participating. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Kelsey, Nicole. It was really, I think it ended on a perfect note. Thank you so much for joining and, and doing that.